Today, as I record this, is March 15th, and that is the two-year anniversary of Unstructured. This also is episode 200, so it's a pretty exciting time. I want to thank you so much for tuning into this episode and hope that you will find many others in the catalog. And please stay tuned to the end where I'll be shouting out some folks that have just been incredible friends to me personally on the show. Now, today's guest is Dana Reidenauer. Dana is a former FBI undercover operative, and she infiltrated groups like the Animal Liberation Front. She's now an award-winning author, and this is a fantastic interview discussing how to establish a legend and live undercover, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Also, I have a live stream where I have former guests of Unstructured available for you to ask questions, and I'm happy to announce that Dana will make herself available on April 16th. So please subscribe to the live stream. That's at youtube.com slash Eric Hunley. So you can hear it when it happens. I have many other people, including two other FBI agents coming on. But for today, I present to you Dana Reidenauer. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic, informal conversations with some amazing people. Hey, Dana, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm looking forward to the interview. Oh, not as much as me. I'm <laughs> really excited because you did something that is just utterly fascinating, the idea of living another life. And I've had other guests who have done this as well. And it's just something that's really hard to fathom. We watch a lot of TV, see a lot of movies, but there's got to be some really deep psychological work that has to be done in order to accomplish this. Oh, you're exactly right. When you work the long-term undercover, it takes a huge psychological toll on the agent. And if whether it's the loneliness, the isolation, it just you at the end of the case you come out a completely different person. Sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad, but uh, you're definitely not the same person at the end of it, depending on the length of time. The cases I worked were long term, like three and four years at a time. Which is interesting because I've also interviewed Bob Hamer, who did undercover work. And I think you may have crossed paths. I don't know if you know each other. You both worked out of the L.A. office. Okay. And I think you overlapped. I think he was in the early oddies. Okay. Let's see. At least I, some I was, of that. When I was in L.A., it was... A, 2000s. 2000s. I think I think that's when he was there too. Okay. But one difference, at least what I perceive is he would work three undercover assignments at the same time sometimes. I did that early on too, until I got into the long-term stuff. Okay. Well, the long-term sounds closer to my un undercover KGB guy of all things. Right. Yes. They're very similar. And it's weird because you're obviously doing it for our government, but I can, well, he guess he was doing it for his government too. <laughs> I mean, both are patriotic. And that's what I think is, is fascinating is I'm not judging anybody doing anything, especially when it's for their country. Well, it's, you give up, you basically give up your life when you're going to do the full-time undercover and you can't have your uh, ties to your family, your, your friends, nobody can know where you are, what you're doing. So it is a commitment. It's a, it's a very deep commitment that you make that you feel strongly about, or you wouldn't do it. I mean, at least in my opinion, uh, I felt strongly about my job, the cases and the case agents. And I had a lot of confidence in the case agents. And that's why I basically gave up four years of being me and taking over this whole different alias. Um, so that's the reason I did it is I felt I felt confident in the case agent and uh, what he was doing. Well, that's cool. Can we can we break that down? I, I would love to hear what exactly happened. Like, you know, as many details as you can share. Obviously, some things may be trade secrets, but how how did you come across getting the job? I know that you went to an undercover school. We can talk about that a little, but then actually becoming the other person. What, what are okay. the steps? What did you do? I'm, I'm well, very it, it was actually kind of funny because my supervisor came to me one day and said. I saw the perfect assignment for you. That should have been my cue to run. <laughs> but he said, look, we need an agent that looks younger than their age, that could kind of take on this whole hippie persona, live in a <laughs> commune, become a vegan. And quite honestly, I didn't even know what a vegan was back then. So I started uh, researching and he, he wanted somebody to go undercover in the earth liberation, animal liberation uh, realm. 
And so they needed an agent who is preferably single, didn't have kids, that sort of thing, and who could take on this whole different persona. So uh, I said it sounded like a good challenge, sounded like fun. It meant uh, going to California for a number of years. And so I kind of took it on. And in doing so, I had to become that person, which means I had to learn all about the activist lifestyle. I had to learn about veganism. And it's not just a way of uh, eating. It's a whole way of life. So I had to learn about the ideology and what to wear. I had to change everything. I had to, you know, you can't wear leather. You can't eat meat, uh, not even honey. So I was, I had to change what I, my look, what I would eat, how I would think, how I would talk, how I would act. I had to change everything to become this person. And that, okay, the veganism thing I'm, I'm thinking about. I talked to you beforehand on the interview and I called you. What were you doing at the time? I'm sure I was eating something. <laughs> you were fishing. Fishing. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> and I, I, I get the impression that you you're you have a a big habit of fishing. <laughs> I do. I'm obsessed. I'm addicted to fishing. In fact, it's, my pole's over uh, waiting for me, you know, uh, when we get finished here. I'll yeah, be are outside we done yet? fishing. Okay. <laughs> I figured that you were like, God, I wish this interview could be it's, earlier. <laughs> I, once I retired, it, I just, uh, I don't know. I just started fishing and now I can't stop. <laughs> so I'm guessing you're no longer a vegan. I am no longer a vegan. I and, eat a lot of seafood. <laughs> and you were not beforehand. I was not a vegan beforehand, no. Now, that actually, to me, is one of the roughest parts in my mind to think about is to just, it it changes your diet, but that also will change your hormones and chemical. Oh, it changes everything. Internally. And that's why when I was preparing for the case, I became vegan uh, a good amount of time before I ever got to California, probably close to a year, because your whole body changes. I mean, your body chemistry changes and you don't mm -hmm. feel too great at first. And then you go through, you know, your body just has to transition over from, you know, all the pollutants and the meat I was putting in it to uh, to fruit and vegetables. <laughs> well, and I've, I've heard too, it, it may be a minor thing, but um, like Asians talk about or have talked about stinky Americans because mm -hmm. you actually will smell different because of your diet. That's what the, the activists claim too. They, they claim that I could never personally tell that mainly because a lot of the people I run around with weren't using deodorant either. So <laughs> was, a little too natural. It was a little too natural. <laughs> but that's that's what I've heard too. I didn't notice a difference in um, smell, but. But for undercover, you have to do that complete 24-7 because what if they could smell? Right, right. And they would come over to my apartment and I couldn't have anything in the refrigerator. I mean, my apartment had to be completely clean. So they would go and, you know, get a, get a soda or something out of the refrigerator. And, you know, it had to be all vegan stuff in there, fruits and vegetables. It can have a packet of eggs or a thing of milk in there. So, uh, you know, I really had to live the lifestyle. Plus, you never know when somebody's watching you. Even a city the size of L.A., you go to a cafe, you don't know who's around. I mean, um, we, we live in a, a big world, but in a way it's pretty small, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bob Amer actually talked about that, too. Right when he was about to do a payoff drop, uh -huh. a couple from his hometown happened to be at, come into that hotel. I know. That that happened to me in like, L.A. a couple times, too. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, we've got yeah, – put a pin in that. We'll try to revisit that, unless I forget. But you established – and so you – before you even started on day one on the job, you were doing prep work for months at a time? That's correct. Okay. And you changed your diet. And then you said you went into studying the activism. Now, where were you studying? Were you like reading bulletin boards and the like, or were you reading actual FBI intel? Well, before I ever got there, um, I was living down in the Virgin Islands. That's where I was assigned at. So I was I was reading the FBI bulletins, of course, mm -hmm. uh, the intel bulletins that were coming out about the domestic terrorists and the, the groups. But I was also reading books written by activists. Right. And I was reading, um, you know, Free the Animals and and all of the the activism books that every activist kind of reads as they become um, into that way of life. So I okay. learned more probably from that kind of stuff than I did the FBI intel. So, you know. Okay, and I, I I'm asking that because I it's a, I'm going to keep reaching back because I think it's always cool to compare previous guests and things like that. But 
um, Bob Hamer had talked about how he had to be extremely careful because being in the FBI, you have more information about these people and things going on than Susie fill in the blank, your character. So if you were in conversation to reveal information or or know too much, that could be potentially dangerous. That is, that, that is absolutely correct. And that's one of the things I actually didn't want to know a lot of stuff. I would tell the case agent sometimes, you know, don't don't tell me that I don't need to know that just yet, you know. And then sometimes I would have the information, but that was something I had to be very cognizant of is not exposing that I had information that nobody else would have. So I, I kind of always played, I mean, I hate to use the term, but I always kind of played the dumb blonde, you know. Uh, I went with it and I let yeah. the activists teach me. And I always pretended to know a lot less than what I did know, because I figured by doing so, I was less apt to trip over my own two feet. So uh, that's why I just went in with, I'm new to this. I'm new to this lifestyle. Teach me, help me, show me how to do this. Uh, that way, if I made a mistake, too, I could always fall back on, oh, well, I'm new to this lifestyle. Oh, oops. Sorry. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You'd be surprised well, how well that works. <laughs> well, and I also have a lot of people who do influence and things like that and negotiation. And it sounds like you probably have studied some of these techniques. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. And the best way to become interesting is to be interested mm-hmm. in the other person. So if you were always asking them how, how, what, how, then they would put you under their wing and you would just become their best friend much more quickly. Right. Because the worst undercover is when the undercover is on the tape and that's all you hear is the undercover talking, talking, talking. You don't ever hear the subjects or the targets talking. The worst undercover is somebody with a big mouth. You you want an undercover (laughs) to be quiet and listen and ask a few questions, but to mostly let the let the targets talk because that's where you're gaining your your evidence and your information from is that something that you went over in the undercover training it was it was it, that was one of the things we learned how to do but mostly it was learning to adapt uh adapt overcome deal with sleep deprivation because a lot of the undercover work you know, you don't really control the hours. So mm-hmm. you may be up two or three days at a time. And that's when you get a little vulnerable because you're tired and, you know, you open your mouth to say something and you don't really know what's going to come out. So part of the undercover school was that too, finding out if the agents that were wanted to be undercovers could actually do it. Can you stand up to three or four days of complete sleep deprivation and think on your feet still? So it was a lot of that kind of thing. I was in the army and we had something called SEER school. Okay which um, I don't remember what it is, but he's essentially a hostage school or being captured school okay. where they would capture and train people. Fortunately, I didn't go through it, but it was, you know, borderline torture scene. <laughs> would you talk? What are you going to give up? Things like that. Is that some of the training you guys were doing? Well, it, it wasn't as much of being tortured, but it was, it was a couple, it was a two week school without any breaks at all. You didn't get a time off. And, you were averaging about an hour and a half to two hours of sleep a night. So you were exhausted by the end of week two. And you were doing scenario after scenario after scenario where, and it, you didn't have any notice. You might have 15 minutes to prepare and get into character. And you might go from a drug scenario where you're buying drugs or selling drugs into uh, a white supremacist. I mean, it was, everything was up in the air. And it was just a crazy two weeks. And at the end of the two weeks, about half of the class washed out. Okay. So, I, I was wondering if it was like that, yeah. like steel school or something on that. Yeah. So it wasn't rate. really torture. It was more mental torture than anything. <laughs> well, th- that would be huge though. And that brings me back to another question with Hamer. He did the multiple cases, but one thing he started to do, he didn't do it early on, but I think he does did it through his career. He always went by Bob. Mm-hmm. That's his first name. And that would be the first name that he used for his character. That's what I did, did, too. You did? Okay. I was wondering if you were always Dana. Yes. Because you've you've lived with that name your whole life. If somebody yells out, Patty, I'm going to keep walking. I'm not going to know to turn around. So, Especially when you're tired. Yes. Unless you have a really unique name that would be in the FBI files or somewhere that they could find it, just about all the undercovers use their first name. Okay. And the more common, the better. Right. 
Yes. Well, excellent. Okay, so then you did the training. And now, did you kind of get picked for that job? I think you did a little undercover before you even did the training. I did. Um, in the FBI, if you're going to do anything long-term, you have to go through the undercover school. But if you're going to do a few little short things, the special agent in charge can give you special permission to work undercover. And that's what I was doing before. In, first, in fact, my very first undercover mission was for the DEA. They had a, uh, a physician who was trading drugs for sex. And mm. they didn't have any women. I was in Mobile, yeah. Alabama. It was my first office. And DEA didn't have any women in their office. So they called over and asked if they could borrow a female. <laughs> so <laughs> I got the first undercover assignment because I was a young looking female. And that was it. I was addicted after that. It was an adrenaline rush and a lot of fun. And uh, I found my calling at that point. <laughs> That's awesome. And this is a sidetrack, but I'm wondering if it's similar. I, I've You'll be my ninth FBI agent that I'm interviewing. Really? <laughs> yes. Of those two are women. Okay. Is that representative of the overall FBI or is there a lot more women than I think? No, that's probably true. I think the last time I checked, I think 13% maybe were women. So it's a very low average. That is about right, I guess. Two yeah. out of nine would be, huh? Okay, good. And I, I don't think it's, it's changed much in all the years. I think it was probably about 10% when I came in in 95. So I think it's about 13% now. It's it's not changed too much. Wow. So it's probably a great opportunity. It is. And it's a great career for women. I think a lot of women are kind of scared of law enforcement in general because they're afraid, oh, gosh, I'm not going to be able to get married or have kids. And um, that's not the case at all. I mean, it depends on what you work. Now, I work. Yeah, if you're undercover, you probably will have problems right, with that. Right, <laughs> Or, you know, I was on a drug squad and we worked a lot of long, crazy hours and gangs. But if you work, work say, white collar crime or something like that, you're working during the day, bankers hours and talking to businessmen, things like that. So depends on what you work in the FBI. Did being a, a young, attractive female work to your advantage where people wouldn't immediately suspect or pick up on you being? It, you know, it did. I always said that women uh, make good undercovers because men will discount you. I mean, mm. it's just a fact of life. I mean, a woman can walk into a restaurant and, uh, well, maybe be a observed, but observed for a different reason. A guy right, walks right. in and, and the bad guy's initially drawn to him thinking cop, cop, cop. But a woman walks in, orders a cup of coffee, sits in the corner and nobody will notice. I actually recorded a drug deal when I was in the Virgin Islands sitting at the table next to where the drug deal was going on. It was a picnic table situation. Mm -hmm. I had a paperback book. I had my bathing suit on and a baseball cap. And I sat right there with a the recorder and recorded the whole <laughs> drug deal. And I was probably seven feet from him, and they didn't pay any attention at all to me. That makes me laugh. That makes me think of um, the Southern aristocracy, how they would just completely forget about the staff or the British royalty or, or whatever, that the mm -hmm. staff is just invisible. Right. That they're like furniture. And it, it works to your advantage, though. You know, if you can walk in, I've always said, too, it's good to have women on the squads. Because a, a man and a woman can walk in, same situation, walk into a restaurant and nobody notices them. They'll sit down and you can, they can watch, do surveillance. Whereas two guys walk in and the instantly you're thinking, what are they, law enforcement? Mm, <laughs> so, okay. so I think it's yeah. always nice to have women on the squads. And then I think women do make good undercover agents. I bought a lot of drugs and sold a lot of drugs and <laughs> nobody paid me any mind because, you know, I was just five foot two female, you know. I couldn't hurt anybody, right? <laughs> what do you do? And I don't know if you've gone into this before, but it's a genuine question because drug dealers, by nature, can be suspicious types. Uh huh. What about when they say, I want you to sample now? I want you to use now. What does an agent do? Well, with me, I always went in with the, I always told them I was a businesswoman and I don't sample my product because- when you start using, that's when your profits go sure. way down because you get hooked on the drugs. And uh, I always said, I'm a business person. I don't use that shit. And that's that's what I went with. So Okay. And they bought it? They, they no bought problem. it. Yeah. It's it's just how you kind of build up your character before you go in. And I wasn't afraid to walk away. You know, if they, if they were going to press it, then I was going to take my money and go elsewhere, uh, just like a normal person would. And if the deal didn't go, the deal didn't go. And if they were legitimate and... I mean, they were going to, they would come back to me eventually. 
but mm. I wanted it to look as realistic as, as possible. Okay, so your um, uh, what would you call it? Your cover, your story, your background. We what, called what, it a legend, and that legend. That's yes. right. And the legend was you had to know your legend just like you did your real life. You had to know your mom's name and your dad's name and where you were born and where you went to school, and because there was a credit history that went with all this stuff too. So if they were smart and they had a, a PI follow you or something like that, they would probably have access to all that. So if they mm. ask you about say, living in Louisville, Kentucky when you're in college, and you said, I never lived in Louisville, Kentucky. Well, you just messed up because they have a credit okay. history that showed you lived in Louisville, Kentucky during that period of time. So, okay. and a, a lot of the groups did hire private investigators. Well, I, I think that would be smart. And so on that, I've, I've had somebody else on, um, Abby Ellen, who wrote a book called Duped, and it's about you know confidence men and you know, her fiancé duped her. But it sounds like you do something very similar in the sense that most skilled con people and liars tell 90% truth. And it's only that little niggle, that that 10% that makes all the difference in the world. But almost everything else, yeah, it lines up. Like your parents' first names might be the same. Or That's exactly. Different. I tried to keep my undercover life so close to my real life. Like I had one, I have one sister in real life, so I had one sister in my undercover life. Same type thing. The only thing was when I was the undercover that was hard was the FBI made me 10 years younger than what I was. So oh. that I had to go back because, you know, when you're in high school and college, music sure. is the big thing. And you remember the band yeah, pop culture. Yeah, I was That's like a was girl wondering. of the 80s. Well, now suddenly I'm the girl of the 90s and Whoa. I didn't even pay attention to music in the 90s. So I had to like start listening to 90s music and find out who was who was popular when I was supposedly was in high school and. That was a little bit of a wrench they threw in my. <laughs> that would actually be a fascinating social study. Like, what would um, translate over? Like, if you were a fan of this band in the '80s in high school, you'd probably be a fan of this other band in the '90s, depending on your clique or group in which you hang. Huh. Well, and right. to to cover myself on that too, I have one sister in real life, and she's younger than me. But in my uh. undercover life, I made ones. I had one sister who was older than me. So oh, okay. what I did was in case, you know, I got hooked on something 80s and they were looking at me like, well, you were kind of young when that song came out. I could say, oh, man, I my sister my was a huge Duran Duran fan or something. You know, I had something to fall back on, you know, with the older sister. That's smart as hell. And thinking about my sister is seven years older than I am. And I got into all of her albums. Yeah, I was going to say, you Much probably to her chagrin. To all her stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yep. My little sister did all that to me. So I just reversed it and... Uh, I would have done the same thing to her. Is building that legend half the fun? It's fun, but it it's very stressful. I mean, you have to really make sure this is something you can live with. And I used to mm -hmm. practice it on airplanes before I'd ever put it into use. Like if I was traveling, oh, the people next, next to you are to you. always going to ask you, well, what do you do? And so I would go into my legend. And then that way, if they kind of gave me a look about, well, how did that work? I realized, uh-oh, uh, something didn't work. And it was better to mess up on some stranger on an airplane than... <laughs> than in real life. So I, I would practice it. And I got to where I would get, I had a ritual. I would get in the shower every morning when I'm getting ready and I would go over my legend top to bottom, my social security number, my date of birth, uh, where I was born, my mom's name, my dad's name, what my dad did for a living. And this would be my morning ritual. I would have this in my head because mm. the bad guys may not even ask you about it right away, mm. but eventually it's going to come. They're going to ask you. And when, in fact, when I was working with my boyfriends at the time, who's now my husband, and we were doing a case together, we had been undercover probably close to two years. And then a subject mm. came to our house that night and started just slamming us with questions. You know, well, where did you work when you lived in Florida? And what did you do? Uh. And if we hadn't spent that last two years kind of doing that and and, mm -hmm. and drilling each other on on our legend, we could have been in trouble because two years, you can kind of forget everything you put into place two years earlier. So, wow. yeah, my, I, I lived and died by my legend. In fact, I knew my legend so well that my case agent brought me a document one day to sign and I signed it. And he looked at me, he goes, I can't believe you just did that. I said, what? He goes, you signed your undercover name to an official FBI document. Now I have to go back to the office and get another one. And I was like, well, why didn't you bring two? You know? <laughs> but, That's actually great though, because that means you were defaulting to that. Yes. Which probably kept you alive. Yes. And not only did I keep the first name, 
I kept the initials because you know how when you start uh, to sign a document, you just start signing so fast. I sure. wanted the same initials because I've always kind of used my middle initial with things. That way, uh, if I got Dana, I could be sloppy. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. So. Oh, that would work for me. Yes. Yeah. You could barely even read the uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the first name. Uh-huh. That's what I'll say. Uh, I'm training to be a secret. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> Not that I'm lazy and sloppy. <laughs> Did you also have a multisyllabic last name? Um, like, yes. Were they rhymed almost or sounded similar? They sounded kind of similar, yes. Yeah, okay. they sounded similar. Again, with that 90% or... I made my undercover last name more common. So if they mm. did start looking too, that, you know, there's just more. Uh, more yeah, and that's there. perfect too. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's what busted um, Jack Barsky. Oh, really? Yeah, he he came here... And he was so perfectly in. He actually had quit the KGB and had been living his life just as a, a family person, normal job, um, executive in a tech firm. And like 10 years later, um, one of the high-level KGB people defected with a bunch of information. And some of that information was, you have a mole here, or you know, this guy, Jack Barsky, who died in 55 I and mean, it was a kid mm-hmm. and that was his name. Well, guess what? Jack Barsky is not a really common name. No, it's not. So they looked <laughs> and they said, Hey, here's this Jack Barsky here. And then the FBI literally moved next door to him and found it out. So that right there, if he was Jack Williams, mm-hmm. he would have been a lot harder to find. <laughs> yeah. They never would have figured, you yeah. know, it'd be like, yeah, like whatever. John Smith. <laughs> well, especially that mm-hmm. definitely. So that's that's really fascinating that you went that way. So if they were searching, they would wind up getting things confused anyway. Which one is it? Wait, is she this one or that one? And you could kind of squeak around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I was doing a lot of the 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 quick hits, uh, where I was doing multiple cases at once, I actually had multiple aliases, and I found uh. that was harder juggling who I was versus the long term stuff. And there was one time I was in an airport and I was walking through the airport and I had no idea where I was. It just, I had been traveling so much and using so many different aliases that I, I had to stop. And I went up to one of the monitors and saw Miami International Airport. I was like, okay, that's where I'm at. But that that's when it gets dangerous too. And you start doing too much undercover work like that. I prefer the long-term stuff. I'm one alias. I'm one person and I can really dive into that persona and I don't have to juggle. That's interesting. Uh, Bob Hamer actually went the other way. He had one alias and was in multiple assignments. And I guess the thing was that running a warehouse where people sell cigarettes and liking children and mm-hmm. being a pedophile could all p- coexist at the same time. Right. And the stuff is a lot of the stuff I was doing really couldn't. You know, I was out on mm. the East Coast buying drugs or I was someplace else selling drugs. And then that didn't really go with the whole um, earth liberation, animal liberation. Did that stress, did they overuse you potentially because you're such a rarity being a female undercover? That's undercover is a, it's a voluntary, very voluntary situation. You have to volunteer for it. The problem is most agents enjoy it and will not say no. So then it kind of falls back mm. on the agent to know when you've done too much. But in my situation, I probably did do too much. Uh, I'll be honest. Uh, the last time I did close to seven years in the uh, this whole realm out in California, I did a four-year assignment, took a little time off, and then came back and did a three-year assignment. And then I went back to, I got um, transferred to Florida, and I was still doing drug cases. And I, w- I was probably doing too much of it. And when... The transfer happened from California to Florida. We kind of fell through the system with the the, the safeguard assessment, which is the psychological stuff. And mm-hmm. instead of going through the proper safeguarding, we kind of got both of us were thrown back on just squads, working squads, and uh, that was that was kind of bad in the in the long run. That did a little bit of psychological damage that uh, took me a while to unravel. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because that was something that I went over with Jack Barsky. He talked about, and I'm probably saying it wrong, so it, you know, hopefully audience listens to the interview to get it exact, but he went through and still suffers today an almost split personality problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe his is exacerbated because of the dual languages. 
What? And, you know, being born of a whole nother different culture, different language, et cetera. But he was commenting that he wished that there was a skilled therapist that could help him work through some of these issues. Did you have an opportunity to get therapy or anything to kind of help you regain grounding? Or is that possible? Well, the Bureau does have a really good program. Uh, and it came about after the Donnie Braskow, uh, if you've seen the movie Donnie Braskow, where Joe mm-hmm. Pistone was undercover with the mafia. After the FBI realized what kind of psychological toll that took on him, they established a unit that all undercovers have to go through. You do psychological Mm -hmm. testing, you meet with a counselor, you'll meet with uh, an experienced undercover agent who's done a lot of um, work, and Mm -hmm. it gives you an opportunity to talk things through. And it also gives them an opportunity to look for if you're going off the rails and you need to be pulled in. So if if it's used properly, then it's a great system. What happened was ours was just, you know, transfer happened and we just fell through the cracks. Now, what I should have done is I could have requested it. I could have said, hey, you know, I think I need to talk to somebody. I, I want to go to Virginia. I need to talk to somebody to safeguard. And they would have sent me. There's no doubt that they would have said, sure. Uh, what happened was I got back and I still had that anarchist attitude. I still mm-hmm. felt like a bad guy. I had a badge and a gun again, but I still felt like a bad guy. And I started doing things that were out of character for me, like mouthing off to my supervisor and getting up in his face. And and I had a supervisor that for the first time in my career that I didn't really get along with, didn't see eye to mm-hmm. eye with. And he and I had some run-ins. And after a while, it was actually him that discovered that I was still living this whole undercover life. And I had this whole, mm. you know, messed up thing going in my head. And he was the one that said, you need to start acting like an agent. You need to come back to your roots. You need to uh, think about who you are. You're no longer an anarchist. You're not running around with these people. You're an FBI agent. And I hmm. actually chose to go back to Quantico at that point. He asked what I wanted to do. And I said, I wanted to go back to Quantico and I wanted to volunteer as a counselor and take a class oh, through and he, which was unusual because that's an assignment nobody wants because you have to live right. in the dorm for five months with the class. And so most agents are just like, oh, I don't want to give up five months of my life to go live in Virginia. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of what I wanted to do. And he let me do it. And it was the best thing I ever did because it really did get me back to the fidelity, bravery, integrity, why I became an FBI agent. It was just a positive experience. The motivation was there for all the new agents. And so I kind of worked myself through it, I guess. Mm-hmm. That was my way of fixing myself after two. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I, I've taught before and it's a similar thing. I'm sure that as you counseled other people, you would see things in yourself and go, uh, oh, yes, wait. And, you know, the self-discovery. I mean, you learn so much when you teach because you then have to explain whatever principle it is and then finally go, oh, I guess I didn't completely understand what it is I was teaching until now that I have to exactly uh, regurgitate it or you know, digest it and serve it back out. So that's fascinating. And it sounds like that supervisor, you didn't get along with him, but was a good influence on you in the end. It was. I mean, he really was. Like I said, we, we didn't get along very well at first, and I probably was a thorn in his side. But in the end, he did the right thing. And because he did do the right thing, that made me a whole different person. When I retired, I retired happy, content, uh, well-adjusted. And I wasn't, quite frankly, when I got to Orlando or I landed on this poor guy's squad, I was kind of a, a, a messed up. Uh, I was a mess. <laughs> and so uh, by the time I, the last year or so, I, I became myself again. Well, in uh, another reach back, Jack Barsky talked about in the KGB, they assumed a shelf life of an agent of approximately 10 years. Undercover, for deep, uh, Yeah, yes. for deep undercover before they go native. Yes. And I tell you what, 10 years might even be too long, depending on what you're working, because I worked, I mean, it's one thing if you're working the mob or you're working drug dealers, people who are just kind of nasty people sometimes. But when you're right. working the people I was working, the activists, they're really nice people. I mean, right. they're they're intelligent. They're fun. I mean, I love animals. I mean, that was one of the reasons why mm-hmm. I was good for the assignment. The majority of them are really decent people. There's just this very small group of people that go off the rails and, and do the 
the high level criminal activity. But for the most part, 95% of the people that I was in contact with were really decent, nice human beings. And so you start to think like an activist, you start to, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're seeing a lot of the propaganda videos and some of it's real and some of it's not, but you Mm -hmm. start to, you understand why they think the way they think. And um, especially that, because what a lot of them are fighting, I think, is a very real, horrible problem. It is. And I'm, it's it the tactics that you have the issue. And with, I, even, not the, I even understand why they resort to the tactics. I mean, it's frustration. They try to do it the right way. They try to change laws. But you and I both know how hard that is. And, and if it does happen, it's in teeny little increments and it takes years to do. So they get frustrated and they burn something down or blow something up to get attention, <laughs> which is wrong, but right, but it's, right. it's understandable. Yeah. I kind of feel like it is it a, a slippery slope with them in a sense that nothing's happening. So they push the envelope just a little bit. Yes. And, and they see a reaction. And a lot of people think that I, I dislike the activists and that's not the case at all. I mean, I have a huge respect for them. I, I grew up in Kentucky. So where I grew up, we didn't really have the whole activism community. And so California was such a different uh, area to live because activism is such a part of the lifestyle there, especially with the young adults and high school and college. And and it was really cool. But mm-hmm. had I probably grown up out in California, there's no doubt I would have been an activist. I would have been right there along the lines with the people uh, that I was now investigating. But I have... I have utmost respect for the activists. It's just those few small, that small percentage that did resort to the illegal activities. And I mean, really illegal, not gluing locks and throwing paint. I I still have no problems with that kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So are you kind of half an activist right now? I am. I really am. Um, I, 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 I have trouble. I do eat a little bit of red meat, but very, very little. I do eat seafood mm-hmm. though. Um, but I, I still think about, I still think about it. And to be honest with you, it's harder for me to enjoy that occasional burger I have because I do think about uh, the years when I was vegan. And I also, mm-hmm. I, I would never ever in my life wear fur. And that has come from the years that I was involved in activism. I didn't understand the fur industry. I didn't understand the atrocities behind it. Now I do. There's different ways to keep warm. You will never catch me in a fur. And when I see a fur, I it just enrages me. And that that was part of living an activist lifestyle. Um, factory farming, you know, is horrible. I mean, it's just it's terrible. But and the saying is, if if slaughterhouses had glass, we'd all be vegan. And that's true. Mm. And so you can't help but live that lifestyle for as long as I did and not have some of that rub off. And I guess on the back of my last book, I think I put what you pretend to be, you become. And in a way, I think part of that is is true. What you pretend to be, you become. Hopefully it's yeah. the good parts and not the bad parts. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that'll be hard because I'm guessing you establish genuine relationships with them, although you had a different name you had the feelings you had for some of the people had to be just as real. I did. I did. I had uh, one of our targets was she and I were so close uh, and we were so similar. We liked all the same things. Uh, she was so well read. We could talk books and movies and we went to the movies together. We spent a lot of time together and I mean, she and I would probably still be best friends if it turned out I wasn't an FBI agent. And now she of course hates me, but um, I mean, she was a very nice person and we had a good time and it was a, it was legitimately a good time. I mean, when we went to the movies we laughed and we cried and we, you know, we, we shared emotions and we shared stories and of course her stories were real and mine were all made up, but it was still sharing. And, um, that's hard. It's hard to leave behind. Well, your books and you, you've written several books now, um, are they, they seem to be autobiographical. To a degree. Especially the first one. The first one really is. (laughs) Is part of your intent or is this just a byproduct to reach back to the community like and almost 
talk to them because you can't keep contact with them. You know, you were separated. Are you doing that after a fashion with your characters in the books, expressing yourself and your feelings, and, and maybe they can read them and and understand more? Well, I um, I was always careful not to not to say anything too bad about the activists because of the fact that if they did read them, I wanted them to know how I really felt about them. And so my activist characters, with the exception of, of course, the main characters, you're always going to have somebody bad. But the majority of the peripheral characters are based on real people that I'd uh, worked. And they were good people, nice people. Of course, changed all the names and stuff, but a lot of the personalities are there. But I think mainly I wrote the books uh, as therapy to just get the emotions and the feelings and everything out and get it on paper. And then the fact that it was kind of entertaining and it was different than most FBI books, I just kind of happened. And after I wrote the first book, I had such a good time and I didn't want to write the run of the mill FBI book. I mean, there's just too many of those out there. If I was going to write a book, I wanted to write a book that was factual as far as procedure and things that the FBI would really do. I mean, there's just so much crap out there that, you know, you read and you're like, yeah, B, I wouldn't do that. We couldn't do that. That's against the law, <laughs> our, you know? Our mutual friend, Jerry Williams, is uh, yes. making a, a stand on that and does a great job. Of she it. does. Uh, She's great. Yes, no. Yes, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have you thought about writing a memoir? I mean, you, you, the story's fascinating enough, and it, w- it would be very interesting because then you could talk directly to things. I get that a lot. I've had a lot of people ask me when I'm writing the memoir. I don't know that I will. I enjoy writing the fiction so much, and it's it's just so much fun. I'm not sure that I would have as much fun writing a memoir. And then also with the memoir, you would have to contact every single agent that you put in the book. Ask well, unless you change their name. Yeah, and, and ask permission and things like that. and. I don't know. I, I guess mainly because I don't really read memoirs. I read fiction. So um, fiction just seemed like the route for me to go. And I enjoy it. Is it is it more pleasant, too? Because a memoir is a little like on the nose and to the point where fiction, you have the opportunity to change things that you really would rather have gone another way. <laughs> That's probably true, too. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that I probably don't want out there that uh, <laughs> happened. <laughs> So back to the fiction um, of your legend and establishing yourself, mm-hmm. because I don't want to leave that behind. You went to, you studied, you became a vegan, you read all the literature. Now to establish yourself, did you just move to LA, get an apartment and just start hanging out? How how do you well, do that? In the two different cases, it was two different ways. The first time, Yes. The first time um, I was working in Northern California, the, the case okay. agent didn't have any kind of sources or confidential informants. They didn't have anybody that could do any introductions. So basically, that's what they told me. They said, "Here, here's the people we're looking at. We'd like for you to get close to them. Um, good luck. And so, so what do you what do you do? I mean, th- this is where it's really interesting because, OK, plop, you get an apartment. Now you have your I'm going to say targets. I don't know if there's another term. Yep. That's exactly right, the targets. And so I started, uh, I kind of followed them around a little bit to find out where they hung out. Because you've got to make a a meeting. It's got to look natural. And so Mm -hmm. I started going to coffee shops, vegan restaurants, uh, and and I did some above ground stuff too, like protest. If, uh, yeah. And so just show up at a protest and, hey, I just moved here, you know, looking for friends and like-minded people to hang out with. And so that's kind of the first step is find out where these people go, where they hang out. Then you have to make it look like a natural meeting. And Mm. so I went to, even went to an animal rights conference. It was at LA. And that was great because everybody was in basically one huge room. So I met all kinds of people. A lot of them were completely innocent, weren't doing anything wrong. But still, that was a good way to kind of segue in. To the people Were those relationships that. equally important to hang out with the innocent as well as the um, target? So To make it look you- real, yes, definitely. Because, I mean, if you don't have any friends and the only people you hang out with is, are your targets, that looks suspicious. I mean, if every right. time they call you, you jump and say, oh, yes, I can do that, I can do that. I mean, you have to be seen elsewhere. You have to have a life. You mm-hmm. have to talk about other things. Oh, you know, Joey and I went to see 
a movie last week. Have you seen it? Or, you know, we're thinking about, and then sometimes just, uh, that was a good way of blending in, you know? So did you, while you were, you know, observing them, did you also observe like who their friends were and maybe have that as a, a way to get in? Like sometimes if you sort of start talking to a friend, you can almost get introduced to them. Oh, of course. Through the friend. That's that a, kind of that's thing. a great way to do it actually. And that's the way um, I would always prefer to do it. And you kind of look for the weak link. I, and I hate to put it as a weak link, but you look for the person who is the easiest to talk to. With me, <laughs> I grew up in the South. And if I heard a Southern accent, boy, I was beeline uh, into the Southern accent because Southern people like to talk and they mm-hmm. like to, uh, they're friendly usually, and they like to introduce you. So if I ever heard a Southern accent, that was the direction I was going to go um, because I figured that was going to be an easy person to talk to and get introduced from. That's true. And you probably could use that because the view of Southerners in <laughs> California. Yeah, there are very one, few of Southerners. <laughs> yeah, Southerners aren't that bright. <laughs> if you ask them, you know, and, and our chatterboxes. Uh-huh. So you probably could go, hi, how you doing? I'm blah, blah, blah. You know, uh-huh. like, oh, here's the Reuben off of the, <laughs> off the truck. Right. But uh, it was great. So that's what I did is I looked for, I looked for that weak link, that, that person that I thought I could uh, penetrate the fastest and get the most bang for my buck, the most introductions from. Now to have a proper cover, I mean, did you go uh, apply and get a job and work somewhere? The first time in my first case, I did not. Uh, the second, mm. I was I was kind of a college student, so I was taking classes and I did actually oh, take a night okay. class. And uh, okay. so uh, I was taking guitar lessons so you know they made me see me running around the campus i'd have my guitar slung over my shoulder and okay. you know say hey, stop to talk where are you heading oh i got a guitar lesson so i did normal things like take guitar lessons and and, and i took a night class and things like that to kind of fill time and to look like a normal person because your youthful look you took advantage well, of you could be a little more irresponsible yeah and it was kind of fun now the second long-term case that i worked um in Southern California, down in LA, that was mm-hmm. a situation where um, I can't give away too much information, but the sure. FBI sometimes will have what we call storefronts, and that's an okay. FBI business. It's a it looks like a normal business, but it's FBI run, and it's almost a honeypot. Yes, and so that's <laughs> that could be sometimes that that's the case. I'm going to guess that some of them are are long established too. Yes, some of them are. Some of them are. And so that was a situation is that I had kind of an in there. I had uh, somebody to do some introductions for me and I had a job. Uh, so I, but in the other side, I had a job, which means I worked all day and then that, I ran yeah, the streets at question. night and on the weekends. Right. And so I was literally working 24 seven. I mean, between the job and running around, it was, it was exhausting. And that was, why we needed a second agent in that case. And that is where my uh, boyfriend came along and we used him as a second agent, mainly to take some of the pressure off, you know, one person having to work full time and run with the targets. You could at least split up the work, you know, and say, here, can you open the store for a half a day and take care of this while mm. I get some sleep? When actually would, I would think it would be even stronger, but I, I, w- I want to compare and contrast a little bit on that mm-hmm. because your first time you were completely on your own, as you put it, you know, you're continuously in the role doing whatever you're going to be doing all the time. How do you sustain yourself if you're not allowed to talk to your family? I, I mean, did you have any contact whatsoever? Very little contact with my family. Very little. How would you do it? I had a uh, a throwaway phone, just a burner phone that I kept okay. hidden. And occasionally I would uh, I would call my mom like once a week. I'd usually go out of town and so I wouldn't be overheard and things like that. And I'd take that phone with me and I'd call her. Did you have the phone at somewhere completely different? So it wasn't even at your yes. place. You would have to go to the phone wherever it well, was. Well, I actually and- had a, uh, I had a safe that was built into the closet. You couldn't. Couldn't see it, oh, okay. and I kept it, and and kept um, my real ID and a few things like that, and in, in the safe, in case I needed it, because you know, you never know what could happen. 
how do you cope with that stress? What what were some mechanisms or things that you used? Well, it was very lonely. I had an outstanding contact agent. Um, we used to call them handlers, but their main mm-hmm. term is contact agent. I had an outstanding contact agent. Uh, he was wonderful, but he was well-known in the animal rights world. So to meet with him, I had to go way outside of town. I mean, we had to go an hour mm. outside of town just to be able to sit down and have lunch and and kind of decompress. So it wasn't like he and I could go grab a cup of coffee and talk. If anybody saw us together, then it was over. But he was very good about being able to at least call me from his undercover line onto my undercover phone and just chat, talk. If, and he could kind okay. of tell when I was starting to get really lonely. But it, it is, it's just a fact of life. Uh, my undercover, my real birthday had rolled around. And I'm, I remember sitting there on my real birthday with no phone calls, nothing to do, feeling sorry for myself, all lonely. My undercover birthday rolled around and all the targets showed up at my house to take me out to dinner and we went partying. <laughs> so you start to think, oh, these are my real friends. You know, they really care about me. At, and they did. And they did. Some of them. They did. But you have to kind of stop yourself from thinking, well, how far do you take this friendship? You know, you can't you can't go over to the dark side just because, you know, you like everybody that you're hanging out with. But um, but it does happen sometimes. So in the second case, when I had a partner and that was a whole different feel to it, you know, you go home at night and you could bounce ideas off each other and you weren't lonely and then he, mm-hmm. you know, occasionally I'd say something and he would laugh and say, well, you've spoken like a true activist, you know, and he would catch me when I would start to slide a little bit. And it's a slip of soap. You just have to be careful. Did he come out a little bit uh, active himself? Uh, what, I'm not sure what you're asking. Did he? Oh, I said you're a half an activist. Oh, Is he another half of an activist himself? Not as much. <laughs> not as much. Okay. No, probably not. I'm trying to think if he picked up any of the... Probably no, no. <laughs> he was happy okay. to get back to being able to eat his burger. <laughs> All right. Well, so you compartmentalized. Yeah. Um, well, how do you deal with that that sense of betrayal? You know, I'm a sensitive person and way more sensitive than most undercover uh, agents, I think. I think that was, mm-hmm. I square, scored really high on the empathy part of the psychologicals which is not a good thing for an under uh, yeah. an undercover. But I do have a very sensitive nature and uh, and I am very empathetic. So I honestly it hurt my feelings a little bit when they were all, you know, uh, they dimed us out and they put my face on the website as a snitch and an agent. And although it was all true, it still kind of hurt my feelings. And I had to tell myself, quit being ridiculous. You know, they're doing what they have to do. That's, that's their job. Their jobs are activists. I betrayed them. So I shouldn't feel, I shouldn't get my feelings hurt because I did the betrayal. <laughs> so, but it, I will be honest. It did. It hurt my feelings a little bit that, you know, do you wish in some ways that you could have a half hour or hour just to sit down with any of that you were absolutely closest with and just say, look, this is me. This is why. This is what. I, I, the person I was the closest with probably would not be in the same room with me. Now, she was very, uh, no, she would not even consent to a 30 minutes. I did have a situation where I had a fella email me and it was an ugly mm. email, you know, threatening email. Wait till you're in California, blah, blah, blah. And I emailed him back. My husband was so mad at me. He goes, I can't believe you just did that, you know, because of course he found me on my website and everything. Sure. But I emailed him back and I just said, look, nobody went to jail on my watch unless they were hardcore doing stuff wrong. I mean, blowing things up. Actually, I mean, I didn't put the people hoarding the cats. I didn't put the fur people. I didn't put any of those. I didn't even write reports on any of those people. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you were an honest activist just doing low-level activism stuff as far as, you know, breaking the mm-hmm. law, then have at it. I didn't care. I was just looking for the people that were doing the the major stuff that the FBI was interested in. So, and I told him that. I said, I was doing my job. You were doing your job, you know, and he actually wrote me back. This poor, this fellow had gone to prison, not because of me, mm. because of another, another agent had put him in prison. So he had actually mm-hmm. done time for arson. And he wrote me back mm. and said, you know what? You're right. You were doing your job and 
I, I'm not even in the movement anymore. I don't even uh, hang out with the activist anymore. I'm going back to school and all that. And I was thinking, well, why are you coming down on me? <laughs> but, but it felt good to just throw my side out there a little bit and just say, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. And you know, would I go, he, would I meet him in California for coffee? Oh, hell no. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's no one, you know? Well, and that's where email is probably nice yes. because you can establish a full, I guess, Skype too, or whatever, but yeah. not, yeah. Keeping the distance and with no revealing right. things behind. Right. Right. You know, because, um, you know, everybody always asks me, well, are you scared? Are you afraid they're going to like come to your house and stuff? And, you know, I'm really not. I mean, like I said, the the majority of the people I dealt with were law-abiding folks and decent people, mm-hmm. and they're not going to come hunt me down. Would I do book tour and end up in L.A.? Uh, probably not. I mean, why? <laughs> why poke the bear, you know? Right. Because would they hurt me? Probably not. Would my car be on fire when I come out of the arena or wherever? Maybe. Probably so, you know? So there's no way I'm going to go out there and poke the bear and 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 – you know, there are many keys ready for your vehicle. Yes. yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, to finish out, I do want to hear you said something uh, aside dimed you out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, I'd have. Well, uh, you mean with the transfer, how we, we are emergency transferred. Oh, sure. Yes. Well, we, there was a freedom of information act, a, a lawyer out in California did a freedom of information act for about 200 activists. Now, normally they're very careful about information they give on open cases, Mm -hmm. which they didn't give any information on the open case. However, the case I had worked previously in California was a closed case. And Mm. that information went out to the targets. And one of the targets who I was the closest to, who I had become very close friends with, she read the reports and knew exactly who who it was that had made the report. It was single source information. Everything came from me and she knew, and she knew I was in LA at the time because it's a small, Mm. they operate in cells, but it's still, everybody knows everybody in the movement for the most part. So she knew I was in LA. She picked up the phone, called down there and dimed us out and said, you have a snitch. I don't know if it's a cop. I don't know if it's, she's working for the cops, but this is who she is. And uh, yeah, it turned ugly and, we were transferred from the West Coast to the East Coast, basically overnight. <laughs> Is that was that a mistake of the FBI to put because of it being such a tight community? I think it was. I think one. I think it was a mistake, but two, I think it was a mistake. Pretty much not telling the active undercover agents that this information had gone out. But if you think about it, it was probably some you know low-level clerk going through documents and she looked up the name oh the case is closed and or he you know and stamped it um this is good to go and you know you can't expect somebody working as a as a clerk or to to understand all these ties i mean as an agent it took me forever to really understand how closely knit they were and how close the the ties were and so i i don't know i don't know that it was the fault of the person who sent out the information. I do blame the FBI for not making that clear that, hey, if it's this number case, we need to be extra careful what we send out. And that should have been, an agent should have been called, making that call. Probably not just some poor support person that got stuck with the job. Yeah, maybe there need to be more flags in the system. Exactly, yeah. I think think investigators should look at that stuff too versus just a, a support person. And I wonder if that's even more of a problem now than when you were doing it, because I don't think there was Facebook at the time, or or was there? Well, there was Facebook. I was very careful with the Facebook because of the facial recognition programs. They're really good now. But um, I didn't have anything in my real name. I didn't have a Facebook account or any stuff in my real name. I did in my undercover name. And I was Mm -hmm. careful. But you have to be careful with friends. Like if you go to a party and your friend posts a picture... And then your face and in connects and right. the next thing you know, you're in trouble. So I was always really careful. And I always told all my friends, please don't post any pictures of me. You know, um, this. Well, what about undercover? Because you're doing two assignments and you're with a group of one. And, you know, as you put it, they're close to each other. Mm-hmm. So they're probably all Facebook friends. Right. 
And, and they may not have when, met each other in person. Well, when but, I was working out in California, the two big cases that I worked out there, I had the same alias. I used the same. And that was oh, all okay. the same. That was okay. what caused okay. it to crumble. But I had to because, you know, you can't work in Northern California in the activist community under this name and then come back in Southern California under this name. Uh, they, they would have known that right away. Wow. It seems like there just weren't enough of you guys. No. <laughs> like you need more undercover. We did, yes. It, it would have been because better. then at least you could split it up and have one person dropping a dime, and you'd be completely innocent of it. So then it would be more confusing mm-hmm. figuring out who did what. Yes, it's. I think we used to call it building the wall, where you'd have, hmm. uh, and we did that with the informants too. If you had an informant give you really good information, you didn't want to burn that informant or put their life in danger, then you'd build a wall. You'd maybe have an undercover come in and take that information and go one step further. And then another undercover maybe come in and take it one step further. So when it did come out in court documents, that informant that was way down the line, um, that was kind of an unimportant part of the of the wheel at that point. And you'd have the agents to testify instead of using the 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 confidential informant. That makes sense. Did is it possible that maybe the state's attorney is, or, or I guess, don't you you don't work with state's attorneys, it's federal, but- um, U.S. attorneys. U.S. attorneys. Mm-hmm. Did they sometimes maybe make deals with lower ones to flip in order to not burn the undercover? You know, like, if all the information is coming from one of the people who is arrested, mm-hmm. you maybe- don't know necessarily about the undercover because that person just pled out. Well, normally in most cases, yes. However, with these domestic terrorism, uh, with the activist community, they are very hard to flip. Very hard. True believers. They, I've seen people go to prison for 20 years instead of giving up information. I mean, much you, you'll arrest a drug dealer and they'll flip overnight. They'll give you everybody they've ever dealt with, but you, you (laughs) get, you arrest an activist and they won't. They they believe because it's it's their beliefs. They they truly believe in their movement, and they'll go to jail to protect each other, which is admirable. But it makes it difficult for law enforcement, and they know it. They know it makes it difficult for law enforcement. Well, their incentives, I guess, are different because they're not really profiting off this, right? Are they? Their intentions are are true and pure. pure right? I wow. Yeah, that that had to be quite a head trip for you. I, I almost prefer going after the drug dealers or whatever because you don't care. Right. Psychologically, it was easier, a lot easier. Well, to pull out, because I know you have to get fishing, <laughs> what does Dana have coming next? Well, I am working on a fourth book. It's not an FBI book, though. I've decided oh. that uh, I'm going to leave the series for a little while. Not to say that I won't come back to Lexi because I like her and she's a lot of fun to write. But I, w- I was ready to veer off and do something different. So I'm writing a fourth book. It has nothing to do with the FBI. It's not a law enforcement book. It's basically cross-genre a little bit with literary fiction and kind of women's fiction. and uh, About a group of friends of a certain age uh, coming together after a tragedy and kind of reinvent themselves. Hmm. So it's... Nice. Yeah. How's that going? It's going pretty well, except for the the fishing keeps interfering. You know, if I get a nice day, it's hard for me not to be out there fishing. (laughs) Well, I imagine the fishing is therapeutic. It is. It is. And, you know, I retired from the FBI and launched my first book the same day. So I never took a day off. I went from one career straight into a second career, which looking back, hindsight, that was kind of crazy. I should have taken like a year (laughs) off, but I didn't. So I really think that this is the first time I've really let my brain rest. And, mm. and I'm enjoying, I'm jo- enjoying just kind of um, being on the water and relaxing and not doing anything. Well, awesome. Now people can find out more about you and what you're doing at DanaRidenhauer.net. That is correct. All right. Well, Dana, this has been fantastic. It's been a lot of fun, Eric. Thank you for having me. Wow. Wasn't Dana fantastic? I hope you take the opportunity to tune in and ask her questions yourself on the live stream coming up on April 16th. But don't wait till then. I have Jerry Williams coming up this week and you can ask questions immediately. Now, I wanted to thank a few people who have been just such good friends and really helping out the show. There's an old African proverb that if you want to go quickly, go alone. 
But if you want to go far, go together. And I feel that's especially the case. And these are some of my closest friends. And I would like to, I'm going to limit it to 10 people. And if I leave anybody off, I apologize profusely in advance. But Tyson Franklin of It's No Secret, Joe Pardo of Indie PodCon, also business of Joe Pardo, rebranded to Dreamers, Andy Wong of Inspired Money, Brent Basham of Podit.net. Now, I have a real special shout out to Christopher Lockhead of Follow Your Different. He has been practically a mentor for me and given me such wonderful guidance and friendship that I cannot thank him enough. Jason DeFilippo, another just incredibly wise source of grumpy old geeks, and he's a master producer of incredible amount of shows that are all in the top 50. Also want to thank Brett Allen of Open Mike. We have kind of grown up together on the show. Larry Roberts of Readily Random. Randall Kenneth Jones of Jones.show is just a great friend to have. And last, um, Stephen and Veronica Davis of Pod Sound School. And oops, I guess I cheated. That's actually 11 people, but since they share the same last name, I'm going to call them one. Thank you, everyone, so much. I couldn't have done it without you. Please, everybody. Consider checking out all their shows and everything they're doing. Thanks again.